0: So the second chapter of a goes like this Nefishti Kitak Mincha, a soul who should bring the mincha offering. Let's do something that we never do in synagogues and Jewish life and try to explain the temple sacrifices in a way that actually makes sense. The mincha offering was an offering of flour, which is to say that what you would do is you, you would bring flour to the temple. And the reason it's called mincha, well, it happened in the afternoon, and that's where we get our mincha service from. Mincha, though, means a kind of a flower offering. And what the priest would do is the priest would drench it in olive oil and throw it on the fire. So it was essentially sort of like a holy pancake. And it would smell delicious once you um, threw it in there. And the reason that you would do this is because what you would be doing would be offering mikem from yourself. The whole idea of sacrifices in the temple that was understandable to our ancestors in a way that's totally alien to us is you gave of what you had. They had their flocks, they had their food, right? They had the ways that they interacted with the natural worlds and to give of yourself was to give your sheep, your cattle, right? Your, your bread, your wine. Since we live in a world that separates us from those things, the sacrifices don't make much sense to us anymore, but for them to give of yourself, here is the wine that I made, here is the lamb that I raised, here is the flower that I ground. It made perfect sense for them to offer it up with a whole heart to God. But Rashi comes in and asks the question that defines the whole Parsha for me. And he says... Wait a second. Whose way is it to bring flour as an offering? Why not a goat? Why not a ram? Why not a cow? Why not expensive spices? Why not aged wine? Who brings flour? And he has a one-word answer. Ani. A poor person. The offering of flour was what some people had to give. Rashi goes on to say, God says, I regard that person as if they had offered their soul entire. Their flower may have been lowest on the fancy rung, but it's highest in my eyes, says God such a beauty, such an understanding of what humanity is really about, such loveliness. And what I wanna do is, in a very weird way, not offer praise to the Torah or to the Kadosh Baruch Hu, to the Holy One, I wanna praise Rashi, because I already knew that God spent more time with those who struggle than those who are at ease. The Talmud tells me. Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan says, everywhere that you find God's greatness, gedulato, you find the Holy One's humility. Ananvatanuto. Sorry, it's a bit of a tongue twister. What does it say in the Prophets? High and mighty, shochein ad, dwelling in eternity. And right after, et taka residing with those who feel crushed and are low in spirit. God's greatness is defined by the fact that God spends more time with those who struggle than those who are at ease. So I knew this already about the Holy One. It's Rashi that I wanna praise tonight. Because of the way that Rashi asked the question, Remember what I said before, whose way is it to bring an offering of flower? I am in this like amazing Kabbalah Hug with Rabbi Dr. Art Green, Dr. Rabbi, I don't know how you'd say it, whatever, Art. And, you know, he's like, he's so good. He's transcended titles at this point. And, and we were learning Zohar this week and he shared this story and he says, you know, when Heschel was publishing one of his books, there was a big fight with the publishers. And Heschel insisted, who is man, the book should be called, not what is man. We have a problem. And the problem is that we spend a lot of time in this world categorizing people into what rather than into whose. And the whole meaning of this teaching, the whole line of the Torah, nefesh ki takriv mincha, you've heard the word nefesh before, it means a soul. It's not an impoverished person coming up, it's not a rich person coming up, it's a soul who comes before the Holy One to offer. And so the correct question, whenever we stand before a human being, is not what are you, what group do you belong to, What defines you, but who? I wonder if you feel like you have this in your lives. I wonder if you feel like you have enough who. I don't. I feel like with the passage of time and even with the raising of consciousness about the fact that whole entire populations have been wudded for 500 years, 1,000 years, for millennia by other people, There isn't yet more who in my life in the way that needs to be. You know, eight people were killed this week because some guy saw them as a what? And the question I have for us is, was there any really a moment where we saw them before their deaths as a who? What would that mean what would it look like that the answer to whose way is it to bring the flower sacrifice that the answer is susan and not susan who picks up my kids or susan who cleans my house but susan who i had dinner with last night so that the way that we relate to people is not defined across a divide of status and class of have and have not but that there's a transcendence of humanity. Do we have that? Do you? I just don't feel like I have enough of it. And one of the things that I wanna sort of explore tonight is what it means to get some of it. I'm gonna say something that I think is incredibly counterintuitive. Because I think that what I hear in these moments of deep pain and wounding that our country is going through, that the world is going through, is that we need to do more. We need to be more. We're not conscious enough. We're not active enough. We're not devoted enough. We're not related, uh, uh, intersectional enough. We're not, we're not, we're not. We need to do more. And it certainly seems like a reasonable thing to say not enough is being done. Look at the circumstances around us. We have to add, we have to grow, we have to do, we have to be more than we are except that in all of those calls for moreness, Chazan Basi and I were talking about this before earlier today, that all I see is the teetering pile of everything that we've already assigned for ourselves to do and the way that it feels like it's gonna come crashing down any second. And I have this instinct, this intuition, is that in the world what we need to be is not more, but God help me, less. What do I mean by being less, the holiness of less? I ask you, what are the expectations that you are washing in your life in the 2020s? Do you require yourself both to be a highly educated professional, right, and also a totally available parent? Do you need to make a comfortable living but also do something wonderful for the world? Do you need to be productive all the time but be balanced in your life? Do you need to seek self-care but also engage in the struggle for other people? Do you need to be humble but assertive? Do you need to be active but quiet? Do you need to be stepping forward but also stepping back? Do you need to be leaning in and also falling over? Like, Also, it would be nice, by the way, if the kids were around it and God forbid they got into Harvard. Do you feel... Swallowed by your own expectations of yourself, the tragedy of psychoanalytic society is that it's made the stage for all the drama, you, the I, and also occasionally the relationship between children and parents. And there's so much more to life than what's inside. There's what connects, there's what's between. I ask you with all of the expectations that we put on ourselves for what it means to live well, to the point where we're running after them and panting and exhausted, is there any space in our demands for ourselves, for the presence of others, God forbid strangers? Do we need to do more or do we actually need to be a little bit less and make more space For others. So much of the problem is that we feel this pressure to put ourselves at the center, otherwise we feel like we're failing. But when we are at the center all the time, every day, it, feel, it means that there's not enough space for other people to be there too. Cicero once said, of those at the apex of life, it's not so much that they're stationed there, but a pale, impaled upon it. You know, want, want to know what it means to have more who in your life? It means that we've got to reduce the what. It's not about pious pronouncements from the Bema. It's about changing the way that we live. I was speaking to one of my rabbis today, and he says, you know what you should be? You know what shul is, Scott? It's the resistance to the what. It has to be the recovery of the Who? Chazan Basia was singing Ich undu, I and you. How do we clear out the wreckage of our expectations for ourselves, for our children, for the way our lives are supposed to look, for our social statuses, for the ways that we're supposed to be politically engaged and actually create space for I? And you I'm not saying that there's anything when when each of those things is brought to me I have to bow to the wisdom of all of the inclusion of all these principles in my life and yet together as a whole I feel like the whole house of cards is going to collapse I'm still in my first year as your rabbi so by the way in Jewish law that means we're not married yet it's just the naive it's just we're just engaged Right, so Tanaim is a time of making vows, right? It's a time of making promises one to another. And here's my promise to you is that we are going to be a place of the who and the whom. If I'm going to do more, it's actually so that we can be a little bit less. That the urge is taken away and that we can interact with people who are not like us, who make different amounts of money than us who have different skin colors and backgrounds than us, different gender identities and sexualities than us, right, that what we're not doing is putting them on top of a pile that's already about to fall, but clearing space at the center so that it can be ich undu. I and you. You matter not as a what but as a who nefesh ketukreiv it's the soul that offers up so forget your perfect offering shabbat shalom